All right, that's not helping with the sound check. But it's, <laughs> so it's good. You can't hear me smoldering. Um, no, but I'm trying to make it a, a to, to make Bond. it sound. James something. Bond. Money partner, money partner. This is Noonmark, a podcast from Make Ready. All right, so this week, airplanes full of Syrian asylum seekers started landing in Toronto. Donald Trump outdid himself, but then a petition circulated to ban him from entering the UK. Fans of Serial got their long-awaited fix. The first test tube puppies were born. Our Justin and our Sophie posed all babe-like for Vogue. The UN Climate Change Conference wrapped. Saudi women voted for the first time. New Zealand got a new flag. And a grandma is facing jail time for not playing by the rules of the Canadian maple syrup cartel. There you have it. The past two weeks, this is episode 14. So this week we're talking about accountability, the fine print, who is and who should be held responsible when things go awry in the sharing economy. What are the mechanisms of accountability and what about those vehicles for worker protection like peers.org? And in the near past, we're going to take a look at long reads, those epic pieces of long form interactive journalism and what many dubbed the future of it. How'd that all pan out? With me as always, Anna Duckworth. Hi, Patrick. John De Palma. Hi. Eli Bernstein. Hey. And Louis-Jacques Davaux. Hi. I'm Patrick Pittman. Welcome to Noonmark. So an article from Matter called Living and Dying on Airbnb made quite the stir in November. In it, Zach Stone told the story of his father's tragic death while staying in an Airbnb. It was a beautiful looking one, one with a rope swing and a tree and everything you might associate with romance and southern hospitality. But the story also brings into focus the awkward, messy and extremely laissez-faire mechanisms that exist to handle these sorts of situations. When tragedy stuck and Zach's dad died, the romance, convenience and affordability of Airbnb fell out in favour of a very frightening reality. Hundreds of pages of legalese making sure your misfortune has not become the burden of Airbnb or Uber, whatever the case may be. This is a quote from Zach's story. What sharing economy startups need to be in order to minimise liability is as passive a platform as possible, lawyer Jim Rosenfeld told a Cardozo Law School panel this March. The more they themselves are providing content and providing services, like vouching for the safety of a property, the greater their risk of exposure. The more they're like a bulletin board or an old-fashioned matchmaking service, in a word, Craigslist, the better off they are. What then is the reality of liability in, in these situations, and what are the frameworks of regulation and organization that we're likely to see down the road? Guys, I, I think when this article came out, it maybe it, it, I think it caused people to stop and think about Airbnb in a certain kind of way. It's not the first disaster that happened, but this one really stood out, didn't it? Yeah, I think he says in the story that this is the first um, real tragedy that there's been that's been made public in any case. And then throughout the story, he references a couple of other ones that happened that just never made it into mainstream press. But but Zach happens to be a journalist who happens to cover these kind of issues anyway. So I think after a year of sort of sitting with it, he decided that he was ready to talk about it. And there's a certain gravity to coming out with that as a fully fact-checked vouched for article under a masthead as well, as opposed to somebody's blog post as well. Yeah, and as opposed to like some sort of hypothetical situation, like I know we've discussed before the possibilities of, uh, you know, your Uber crashing or uh, an Uber driver getting to some situation in between rides or some of these hypotheticals, but this is like a compelling story that actually happened to someone. There, there are many interesting directions to go in this. I, I think one of the, one of the, it's worth just getting an easy dismissal of this kind of thing out of the way first, which is obviously when something scales, bad shit's gonna happen. And when you have what they talk about as some nights with a million guests, I think was the number I saw there, which sounds 
very high, but that's the number that's quoted in the piece. Um, odds are somebody's going to die for some reason, regardless of regulation and policy and liability. Can we use that to dismiss this year, or, is, or are we looking at something specific to this situation? I think that it's worth looking at for uh, different reasons than we might first react to that that article, right? The article is like this big tragedy, and I'm not trying to dismiss that, that at all. That's what draws you into the subject. But the real interesting meaty part of the story um, isn't kind of like how Uber assesses or Airbnb assesses the danger of a rotting tree. It's how um, services that uh, provide a front or communicate as if they are verifying the trust between uh, market actors, uh, how you resolve that sort of language with their actual action, which is just like was said in the article, a passive platform. And then how we resolve that with existing um, and up to this point adequate policy around insurance and around commercial and pr private use and all that sort of stuff. I think um, when we talk about Uber, we're talking about the liability of as a consumer. I think, I mean, none of us, I, I don't think any of us are Uber drivers around the table. Anybody giving it, <laughs> giving it the old try? No, no, no. So nobody's, Not on my bike. No, nobody, nobody's chasing you down the street, accusing you of being one. Um, <laughs> I, I think um, with Airbnb, I, we a lot of us probably have the situation of thinking about it from the other side than we do for, with the Uber equation, which is as the person providing the service itself, what Airbnb would call the commercial provider who they just happen to be facilitating in a network of trust. I would say that when we act as that commercial provider existing in this network of trust, that's not how we think of ourselves in, in these situations, is it? No, you mean as as a host on Airbnb? Yes, yeah. uh, that's how. You, yes, Airbnb would suggest that you are a host using their platform. To, <laughs> to, but how? Do, how do, Anna, Anna, you, you. This is something you do on a regular occasion. How do you think of yourself in that situation? Honestly, I I suspect I'm like a lot of the people out there. Airbnb offers such a huge convenience and value to me that I choose not to look too deeply into the other the implications of signing up. And I think that is their, their uh, main uh, transgression is not taking on the liability um, or is not the failure to take on the liability themselves, but the failure to fully inform those who are using the platform, like Anna, right? Mm -hmm. If they were truthful, they would say, okay, technically, or in most cases, 90% of cases, your residential insurance does not cover commercial use of your property. And they would just say that straight up. And then they would provide you resources through which to get umbrella insurance or to get commercial insurance. And then that you would know that commercial insurance costs like triple. And then you'd factor that into yeah, using but it as I, a... I feel, you know, it's like, why would the car manufacturers make cars that can go up to 280 to, uh, 80 kilometers an hour when... I don't know, and uh, outside of Germany, I don't know any country where you can actually, or even like that, the, that that you can actually use a car. But what's in the, the parallel way. there? So, are you, are you do you have to label the car and to force uh, educate the people before they buy it? No, you're gonna sell the car in a very 
kind yeah, of... Yeah, but then you have a regulatory framework around that of cops with radars and strict punitive measures for in any way going outside of those parameters. Yeah, but that's not an in-industry in thing. It's yeah. like, it's the same thing for mm. if you, if my dad dies because of, there's a, 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 a branch that falls on his head, there's an ambulance that will come that has nothing to do with Airbnb and all that. So the rest of the... The, the the framework kicks in to take care of that situation. Yes, but the framework wasn't there to check whether the branch was rotted in the first place, which in a B&B or yeah. hotel situation, there would be that kind of situation. So I think there is the... Well, um, you know, I mean, or, or I mean to an extent. To an extent, that's yeah, what it's that's intended, intended is, and I think theory. Part of what you're saying is that there is there are there's one insurance company in Canada that um, does offer um, temporary uh, and short-term uh, rental insurance, like it's, it's, it's not a commercial insurance. Mm. It's an add on to your residential insurance. Uh, and so therefore, you know, the insurance, uh, industry is responding to that need. Mm. Um, and so that's not on Airbnb and I'm not saying that it should be, but it's just on them to kind of be upfront. Oh, about I, I agree. And it's just a question of how, how deep does it need to go? Because I think that there's some people and in many areas of life who prefer to uh, focus on, again, and we've had that conversation before, focus on the benefits and kind of avoid the, the issues that come with actually using the service mm -hmm. or you doing something, yeah. which is you can, I mean, th that applies in, in all nature. other, yeah. It's cause, in, it, cause I think, they exploit that and that's what Yeah, somehow you kind of know. Your car analogy is actually a really good one because in that situation, Let's call, for some reason, let's call Airbnb like a really fast, like nice seven series car. I don't know, is it going to be, so it's it's built for Germany, it's built for the Autobahn. If you recommend doing that, it's fun. But with that, you still are expected, if you are driving that in the streets of Toronto and you're not dead mouse, you are expected to drive it acceptably and um, responsibly and sensibly. And if you don't, you are punished for that and the liability for not doing that is entirely on you. The liability is only on the manufacturer if the goods have failed you in some mm -hmm. way. Mm. This is and, the and, thing. And, yeah. and you're expected to have some kind of technical ability as well yeah. in your driving, which is, and you know. And this is the thing, and I know, Anna, you and I have argued about this well, without the mics we on. It, no, we never argue. Um, but about that. With these services, with the Ubers, with the Airbnbs, with any of these sharing economy services, there's almost an expectation that the liability should be on this facilitator and not on the person who is choosing and knowingly mm. allowing for their space to be rented out and and get, and benefiting from that as well. My 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 thinking when I was when I read this piece, uh, going back to the um, the point of departure here, the discussion. I was like, yeah, there is an infrastructure of safety, of of uh, of quality that exists. That's an invisible net around, you know, what we do, and um, and uh, the access that is provided by these um, uh, companies, and also to a point, the valuations that they generate as being tech companies, being freed uh, of all of those uh, regulations. Well, you know, those regulations in place uh, are also forcing 
um, companies to go through all kinds of agreements, all kinds of procedures to make sure that we are safe, that there's protocols in place. And God knows they fail all the time because, you know, you check in in a hotel or you do. I mean, things are not always happening the way the specs maybe are saying it sh they should happen. And and then the a the advocates uh, of, um, of uh, the disruptors are going to say, yeah, but there's also regulation that is uh, meant to keep the, 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 the position of these incumbent companies and protect them from innovation and all that, which is, I think, well, true as well. Let's right? talk about like why, if it's so obvious, why are we having this debate in this industry rather than in others, like in the car industry? And I think it's because lots of what these companies do or the way that they exist in an otherwise intangible sort of service that they offer is through communications and content, mm. right? Lots of what Airbnb does is provide this a uh, website on which they talk about, you know, the people that are supplying as hosts. They talk about the guests that are traveling as like newly empowered people. They talk, they speak in a way that yeah. tries to insert themselves as relevant in a way that a hotel um, just has uh, earned through their like physical existence as like this place that you are and that's their mm -hmm. place and they're hosting I, you. But I think it's also because it's 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 highly visible and you have to notice it because it's visible. Uh, same thing, uh, we talked about ownership the last time and um, how many people lost their homes as a as a as a consequence of the the, the crisis in two thousand eight that made a phenomenon visible of ownership of homes in the U.S. particularly, which has nothing to do with ownership. I mean, maybe you have the keys and maybe you have some of the attributes of ownership, but if you mm -hmm. give 4% of the value of the home and uh, the, all the rest is, is is a series of financial instruments that allow you to get those keys, you don't really, oh, you're nice. not really the owner, mm -hmm. right? But we've called it in an ownership crisis. We've called it like right. all of the consequences and, and uh, of, of ownership were discussed there. Uh, but my point is, aside from that little uh, party there, it's it's uh, it's it's because it became visible. Something became visible, and then we started paying attention. But to tie that back to our conversation, like you would never hold the bank that holds your mortgage liable for an injury that happens on your property because there's no confusion there. The bank never claims to be like, you know, like we're going to empower you to come into your home and we own it with you. And we're kind of like, they don't phrase themselves as that sort of service. No, but they're kind of giving you the illusion that you're the owner when our, our, my claim is you're not really the owner. So maybe by the same token, you could say, look, you're the real owner. You're the silent owner exactly, of that home. Yeah. I'm just uh, 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 the, the, the TA. That's the, my the, point. The, but no one, no one ever, no, no one exactly. would ever hold their bank responsible for an injury on the property, even though the bank is technically the owner. Exactly. Maybe it's because the banks have done a better job than than, than Uber because they're they're kind of this. They're around it without being. Yeah, they're actually, silent. They've created these financial instruments in a way that it's just silent. And that's and my it, point. Like Airbnb is really loud because they want to, or you know, they're a participant in a community because that's really all they have. Banks have yeah. real money. Banks, you know, convert this transaction to this. Tra they serve as a middleman and I mean, in a lot more significant way than yeah. a, a marketplace does. And so Airbnb needs to like, you know, be really loud about their involvement. And that's takes us back to peers.org where, you know, they're not necessarily doing anything negative. They're just trying to make it like uh, exciting to participate in that economy and in their community. I don't think peers.org are doing that. I think they're a straight up astroturf organization that are ex that exist to create resistance and lobby movements at, in places where these 
um, the Airbnbs and Ubers of the world need to that yeah. was that was the again generation. exploiting but, like these basic human kind mm. of interests that we all have. Yeah, and and look, it speaks in, in, exactly to that. That is that is how they started. Um, they do more than that now. They 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 frame themselves. Now they do ensure. Now they do like health benefits for people who work in like Uber drivers and stuff like that. Yeah, it's um it's worth talking about like how they are now versus how they started in that sense. And as you now look at Airbnb having won its regulatory victories all throughout America and legitimizing itself in, in that sense, they're moving into a new phase. What fascinates me about this new phase that they're in, and it goes to this conversation, trying to convince people that conversations about insurance are fascinating can be fun. But seriously, <laughs> stick with me. It is fascinating to think about this. Like this now is their next move as a mm -hmm. organization representing the workers of this economy is to acknowledge that they're workers and that there is something more than a neutral platform service happening here and that mm -hmm. there's a responsibility to protect and provide for those who engage within it in terms of income protection, in terms of basic health care. They do this at arm's length through an organization that technically they only support, they don't run, but there is an implicit implicit acknowledgement there of, of something important, which has almost an unresolvable tension with this idea of the liability not sitting with them in the center. I don't think there's an answer of right or wrong in that, but it's a really interesting mm -hmm. tension between those two mm -hmm. things. The tension comes from like them realizing that they need to reassure people of their participation and that people are starting to become aware of these like possibilities for uh, unsteady income, for liability, for uh, getting their own health coverage. And people are starting to talk about this stuff. So they need to have the resources available and they need to have that centralized somewhere. But at the same time, they don't want to talk about it directly. I mean, assuming that these kind of seriously tragic incidents are fairly rare, which I think relatively they are. I don't even know that I'm not convinced that they need to do anything. You know, I think that they can just keep going as they are and that the the greedy human in most of us is going to hear more of these stories, you know, like the Zach Stone stories where his dad dies and and just be like, that sucks. And I really hope that never happens to me. But I mean, I, I, I'm still going to use Airbnb because it's the best deal. And then in a year, we're going to hear another one. And then in six months, we're going to hear another one. And that Airbnb, because it happens so infrequently, Airbnb is just going to like have have to deal with a big PR crisis in yeah, between exactly. each one. And then that's it. And they don't actually need to change anything. Well, I, I, and I think that's going back to why I framed this at the start with this question of, is this just a matter of scale and that shit happens? And I think it is, but it also raises important questions within there as well. And um, you know, it's Homer Simpson hugging his world's um, longest hoagie for several years saying, how can I stay mad at you every time he goes back to it? <laughs> we, w we will go back to Airbnb because it's a service that we use. And I mean, I know uh, we recently used it for a, to, for a working session where we got out of town and ended up in a church in the Kawarthas all looking nervously at the rope swing that was hanging there. But uh, we, we still perfectly, well, Eli, you still perfectly happy, happily slept in a bell tower. So I did. I also rode the swing. Yeah, you did. I, well, I kind of feel like there's a bit of an irony in it because the appeal partly of a platform like Airbnb is that it actually, uh, you outsource some of the trust uh, and the risk to them, right? So they do the vetting of potential hosts and hosts do the and, and they do the vetting of potential guests, right? I mean, you have, um, uh, you know, user reviews, you get you get scores, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps make things easier, not simply from a kind of, you know, usability standpoint, but also just a trust standpoint, you go, okay, well, 
they're on Airbnb. These reviewers have said that they're legit. So I'm, I feel fine. So you can, you could even graph this right at the low level, kind of the low level of risk. It's actually much better um, than just going to the, you know, your average random Airbnb, uh, your random um, bed and breakfast or in, or, you know, c- consider something like um, going to, um, you know, just getting in a car, obviously it's a hypothetical example, but getting into a car that's just a random car saying, hey, if I give you money and, you know, you can haggle over a distance or whatever versus the convenience and also relative safety of getting into an Uber X. Um, but then at the higher level, this is where it's ironic, is you don't really know. And it's it seems much more risky than hotels, which have codes to maintain and and uh, things like that. I think it's uh, also a uh, final point for me, but um, maybe it's it, we should call it the self-serve economy. Like it's basically, I remember, you know, companies that when self-service kind of options started being introduced, you could just change your phone plan or whatever. How many times did companies have to, you know, set up specific um, call centers to deal with people having done funny things on, oh yeah, I clicked on the wrong thing. And it took years of mm-hmm. training to get people to use uh, to be free to to change to to have more control over their services. They still haven't figured it out in the supermarket checkout. <laughs> but uh, so I guess the more we, I mean, what these uh, companies are saying is, we provide you visibility, freedom. You've got you can you can see the reviews, you can make choices, you can you have more information, you have more power, make your own choices. But it it also going it's 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 going to take uh, a few layers of ecosystem that will kind of bring the capabilities that uh, for people to to operate which will substitute maybe some of the legal framework so maybe we're going to go in a we're going to be in a post legal uh, era so it's time to head again into the near past where we take a look at a, a trend or an idea from recent times that either has or hasn't panned out in a, in a way that was expected this week. Ha! Journalism. <laughs> 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 so ah. um, it's become all about these big, long interactive stories lately. First, uh, a few years back, 2012, I think, the uh, New York Times Snowfall piece came out and, you know, was going to change everything about digital storytelling online and how the news would matter in a digital way. Uh, More recently, Paul Ford's epic Bloomberg story, What is Code? 30 or 40,000 words completely madly presented to such an extent that they sacked the entire team behind it, but bravo them anyway. Um, And our good friend and collaborator Elmo Keep's recent piece on transhumanism for The Verge is another one worth checking out. Some are touting these long snowfall-esque, read a bit now, we'll even come back for more later stories, as the future of journalism, and they have been for a few years now. Long reads, the company, for instance, and platforms like Medium, are built on the assumption that readers want or even crave a longer, calmer, beautifuler, and engaging in unexpected ways sort of piece. Um, but how is that model panning out in the real world now that, say, Medium is more established and these things are out there and this thing's kind of becoming the norm? Is it... How how are we seeing this going? Well, I think the the what is code piece or Elmo's piece for The Verge are 
kind of another level than what you might find on medium at least in my experience i've never seen anything that's that or even this the snowfall-esque piece it's or the snowfall piece itself those those pieces are so incredibly complicated and have so many different kind of interactive elements that i've never seen on an on a medium piece so i feel like medium is like accessible to to the content producers in a way that the Snowfall piece is not. Yeah, I, I think to pull off that level of story, it requires a discipline that is entirely new and similar to what we heard the Wired guys talking about and that we talked about in here a little while back of really involving a much broader team at from the beginning mm -hmm. of these kinds of stories. And it takes resources and it takes investment. Um, those aren't things newspapers tend to have a lot of these days mm -hmm. and I guess spread it around carefully but there are a lot of these newer tech platforms the verges and whatever the world they're probably they need to get noticed and they need to stand out amongst all of the uh the noise out there yeah I definitely don't think that uh you know long-form journalism is played out by any measure but I think that it emerged um as kind of a reaction uh to the you know the all the talk about the attention economy and how attention spans were diminishing online, everything was becoming tweet length or snippet length uh, or a listicle. And I think that this was a reaction to that to get something more meaningful. And I think that now, because there is an appetite for long form journalism, and I would say that it has been successful, I feel like the conversation is more just about um, engagement and, and meaningfulness, regardless of length, because there are long pieces that are fluffy and mm. short pieces that are full of significance. So I think that the discourse has shifted a little on that, and and what it what it did is is uh, remove maybe the the dogma of you know snackable content, and you know you had those there were some limits of uh, people don't read more than four hundred words or something like these formula and these things that made no sense. But so at least this I think liberated everyone from saying there's a formula. No, everything goes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's also part of a um, broader idea of being contrarian, uh, which I think seems to be appealing in a world of um, enormous speed, speed and uh, quantity, and uh, so. I guess for for content stories and uh, to a broader extent, media companies and, and, and organizations who create content, uh, you need to be contrarian. So I guess it's always chasing what's new, what's yeah. different. So now we're going to go back and the pendulum will swing from long form mm -hmm. to short things. Uh, Vox has come up with cards. Uh, so it's experimentation and this, this uh, it's newness, right? Mm -hmm. I guess it's always and coming with something new. And as with all of history, there's room for more than one idea in the world yeah. and people right. can understand that there's room for more than one idea. I think, um, but it's interesting. I mean, I don't know how long reads are doing as a business, but it seems to me like the hype around it as a trend that was going to mm. be a big thing. Like I, I pretty sure matter are still struggling for a business model there and these i mean there are some great sites like the atavist that have built a business around the specific long read but their business model is around selling the platform which is you know always the good business mm. model yeah i, I think, think you'd think that, or uh, there'd be more of a business model around a company that created stories that involved like multimedia uh, slash interactive components uh, rather than just had a minimum like word count, you know, like instead of longreads.com, like interactivereads.com, that was uh, like, you know, uh, the what is code thing had 
kind of maybe not useful interactive elements, but kind of like Great it design. added to the story. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it interacted with what the guy, what he was trying to say in the words and therefore added to it. And Snowfall, I think, had like some Snowfall videos. Snowfall is and super some, useful. Yeah. yeah and very like interactive. It, 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 rather than just being long, like like you said, it requires a different practice and it involves a team from the very starting to build. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, that involves a ton of resources, but people are going to notice that more. I, I think um, I, it's worth asking. I mean, when we talk about Snowfall, nobody ever really talks about what the story was about or any impact that the telling of the story had upon those it was told about. Um, I think that was an example where the technology was so new it actually overwhelmed the story and it, the story itself didn't stick with any. keep calling it Snowflake. Yeah, Snowflake. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really don't know what it was about. Yeah. But I, can I, I'd like to add something, which I, th- I, I don't know how you feel about it, but us being involved in, in content, I felt that this was... This is very liberating when uh, when uh, you get out of this kind of dogmatic formulaic kind of situation, which is now it's like we can what what does it feel right for an organization or a client? You know, there's everyone is doing everything. Companies are doing print magazines again. Companies are going long form, going digital. I mean, you do what's right for you. It's same for fashion. Fashion, it seemed like in the 70s and the 60s. There were a certain kind of haircuts, the certain kind of pants, you know, and now we've got every style, every fashion out there exists. Like, just define what's best for you, what f- what you feel right wearing. Because I don't know, right now it seems like th- every possible variation of fashion exists someplace at the same time. It's not just sequential. I I, I think it's worth just challenging a little bit of that, though, and doing my usual, thus it has always been this way sort of thing, that the way we look at history, the things that stick around, particularly, particularly from eras we weren't part of, it's the larger trends. We see more homogeny in that Mm. which came before us. Uh, And I think infinite possibility. I mean, obviously much more so now with technology, et cetera, et cetera. But it always seems that in the moment you are in, there is more variety because your memory of the past is like, why are the, why were there so many more good TV shows and less crap in the past? Because everybody's forgotten the crap, mm-hmm. you know? And it's always worth remembering that with these yeah, things. But yeah, but you were not in a world where you could eat an Egg McMuffin at... 10 p.m. just because I mean the the this, all this, availability this is the change in the world the, everything <laughs> becomes available in all kinds of situation and it's just I mean it's it you see it everywhere and it forces pe- someone to say look I can have an egg McMuffin at 2 p.m. do I want a freaking egg but McMuffin I think that there's at 2 p.m. I think there's more to it than simply all the variety I mean I think that Patrick made a similar point to you before just saying that the internet there's room on the internet for a variety of lengths and voices and styles and approaches and I think that uh, on the one hand, this is a reaction, you know, long uh, form journalism is not just a reaction to apprehensiveness about uh, attention spans and, you know, short posts and things like that, but even more specifically, the t- migration from a static uh, internet, uh, web page based internet to a reverse chronological feed based or stream based internet. Um, and I think that it's. Um, a kind of a healthy reaction to that. Um, I think that there is room for both. There's room for the stream, you know, my, my favorite hobby horse, Snapchat, the ephemeral stream, things appear and disappear. Um, and uh, I think that long-form journalism is a great uh, counterpoint to that, even if, uh, as you say, Patrick, it might it's not going to be as successful by and large. Um, I also think that it it's 
a statement or symbolic, right? So even if people don't read it, by and large, there will always be the small niche of, of you know, heavy readers that read it. But I think that to be a publication that, that produces that kind of high quality work, Snowfall, you know, chief among them, obviously, as you said, Anna, it's even beyond long form. It's interactive and, well, yeah, and well curated. But but I think that it's it's a symbol of I think health uh, the health of a content publication to, to but also make room for that. They're there to win a Pulitzer a lot of the time too, right? Yeah, as again as it has there always is been the awards, but it's it's more it is it is exactly that it is a statement of mattering and existing and being able to invest. I mean, now it's you do need to show this level of art investment and interactive investment to be noticed. And these pieces generally are still noticed. I'm sure some of them don't get the traction they want, but we talk about them. Um, it's probably no different to The New Yorker deciding to give so much of its magazine up over several issues to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. It's mm -hmm. like, this is a story that mm -hmm. we have invested in telling that mm -hmm. matters. And within that context, that's a statement about the magazine and what it's for. So Eli, good sir, for those existential ramblings, we need your distillation help. What do you say? Um, so I'm going to return to the roundtable on Airbnb and liability and uh, the sharing economy. Um, I was particularly quiet during that segment, um, and I think partly because th that issue is a little bit beyond my reasoning. I feel really hard pressed to come up with a strong answer or a strong position on who is accountable there. I mean, there's, you know, uh, you know, I, I am reminded of both our last podcast where we talked about access over ownership. I mean, clearly that's relevant here. Uh, you know, there's that expression in law, possession is nine tenths of the law. But if we move out of a kind of possession style uh, archetype in business, then we have to reinterpret the law too. Um, I think that something John said before about, you know, these companies, Airbnb and Uber, kind of making uh, the risks more known, kind of upfront, um, kind of alerting people to what is involved, what is at stake, whether you're a guest or a host on Airbnb. I think I take a slightly more cynical look at it. I think that people, it's not that they don't know, I think it's more that they don't care. I think that people have uh, a sufficient appetite for risk on the one hand and a sufficient laziness with respect to understanding the fine details on the other hand, that they just go into it. They go, okay, I'm going to host, you know, they could trash my place, but Airbnb is a, is a sufficiently strong vetting system that they're just, they're probably not going to. And there's probably some sort of recourse I can take. I'll look into it if it arises. Or if I'm going to be a guest, you know, okay, it could be dangerous. It could be whatever. But a, statistically probably won't, and B, if it does, there's probably some legal recourse I can take. I don't know what it is, but I'll look it up later. And there's this just kind of lazy, but at the same time, we're all too busy to look into it, um, attitude. And I think that what, for me, that goes back to is actually the law's fault. The, the law, uh, as usual, is quite complicated, quite detail-heavy, uh, and you know these contracts and these terms of agreement are prohibitively long, obscure, opaque, um, that it just makes people, you know, who, who reads the terms of agreement for iTunes, right? I mean, the, the yeah, the fine print. I mean, but they're available in comic book form. Yeah, yeah. P Patrick, uh, you know, alerted us all to that the great comic strip version of the iTunes terms of agreement. But uh, anyhow, so that's noon, Mark. Thanks to the gang this week. We're brought to you as ever by Make Ready and the Alpine Review. 
produced by Anna Duckworth and edited by Nick Jaworski of Podcast Monster. We're available on iTunes and Stitcher. Music is thanks to Jamie Townsend and Ben Dalton of Southern Shores. You've been listening to Anna, Eli Bernstein, John De Palma, Lou Jacques Davaux, and me, Patrick Pittman. We're all taking a teeny tiny little break until January while I go down to Australia, sit on beaches, and send pictures back to everybody trapped in the Canadian winter. So until I return from that and we're back here, good luck with it all. Oh.